I think so. Good. Good morning. Glad each and every one of you are here today. We know some of you are visiting with us. Some of you came specifically because of the dedication time for the little ones, and so a special welcome to you. If you need anything while you're here, please let us know. If you happen to need a restroom, just up the stairs, first door on the left. But we just want to ask, you know, we've got a lot of people in here today, so try to keep your movements to a minimum so we're not distracting to other people. We also have a very serious message this morning. It's kind of an interesting message that this week lines up with the Bevy dedication because uh, it's not the uh, sort of message that you would just pick for this unless you were, you know, but we're not picking a message. We're going straight through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. I'll give you just a little bit of background. Um, the Apostle Paul planted the church in the city of Corinth. He lived there for over two years, um, and then he left, and after he left, Uh, People that had come to know Jesus, to believe in him as Savior. Some of these were Jewish people that had grown up um, in Judaism. Um, Others were uh, Greeks or Gentile people or the rest of us, non-Jewish people, um, who uh, were in a very hedonistic um, culture, um, a very philosophical culture, um, a culture dominated at this time um, by the uh, Roman government, the Roman ways, the Roman gods. And the Apostle Paul comes into that setting and preaches to the Jewish people, the one that you've been waiting for all along, is Jesus the Messiah. He has come. He has died on the cross for your sins. He has risen from the dead, and he offers life to everyone who believes in his name. And to the um, non-Jewish people, he is, his message to them is that all of your gods are false. They are nothing. There is one true God, that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God, God in the flesh, who came and lived among us and who paid for our sins. And in him, you could have rightness in life and reconciliation with the one true God and live in relationship with him. That the one true God is honest and just in all his dealings, that he is not um, like your Roman gods who just kind of do what they want to, when they want to, who aren't uh, held to... Um, their, their own holiness or moral character as God himself really is. And along with this, as people are coming to believe in Jesus, he's teaching them that if you believe in God, that God expects you to live your life for God's glory and honor in a way that loves God, in a way that loves your neighbor as yourself, in a way that honors and respects every person as made in the image of God that does not take advantage of people and that seeks purity in one's own life. And the bar is high. The standard is high in terms of how Jesus expects his followers to live because we were supposed to look at Jesus to model his life and to live in the same way that he lived, with the same sort of purpose and moral character. Of course, we know that in our own sinful human flesh, we cannot do this. We can only do this by believing in Jesus, being made a new creation, our spirits being made alive within us, and dying to our flesh and saying no to our flesh. We can only do this by the power of the Spirit of God in our lives, by being active in the Word of God and and staying strong with one another in fellowship in the church. We cannot do this alone, and we certainly cannot do it in our own flesh. But we've already seen in the first four chapters that the church at Corinth has been 
distracted. They've gotten into kind of this hero worship where they put one teacher above another, even though these teachers that are being talked about, Paul and Apollos and Peter, um, all taught the same doctrine, all taught the same, you know, the same teachings. And so there's really no reason for it to be picking and choosing between them. But yet, that's kind of the natural human tendency is to say, I like this guy, my guy's better than your guy, my team's better than your team, and to create, this, you know, create divisions even where they don't exist. It's part of the human flesh. And so he's dealt with that issue, and now we're going to read chapter 5. It's only 13 verses. We'll read it, and then we'll go back through it. But let's go ahead and read the word, we'll pray, and then we'll get into uh, the specifics of the lesson. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. I pray that you would help us to quiet our hearts before you now, God, to listen to your word, that you would speak to us, that your truth would be known and that we known clearly and simply and that we would apply it uh, to our lives and we would apply it to our church as a whole. Lord, our flesh is weak, our flesh is prone to sin, and we need your help. Help us to understand the seriousness of sin the destructive power of sin. Help us to understand how holy you are, God, and how you are worthy that we would fight against sin in our own lives and in our church and that we wouldn't tolerate it, Lord. Help us, we pray. We need you, Jesus. Thank you that you died on the cross for our sins and that you are a risen Savior and that you will return. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Anybody need a vomit bag? Uh, that's what I first think of when I read verse 1, where it talks about a man sleeping with his stepmother. That's pretty, pretty hideous. And Paul says, you know, basically, you know, you've come out of this very sexual, very hedonistic culture, and 
you've actually managed to go a step further than they normally go. Um, because in the Old Testament law, this is certainly you know, in Leviticus 18, 8, 8, it talks about how man shall not sleep with his father's wife. Um, and then also in the Roman culture, if you read uh, Cicero's Cluentus or Gaius's Institutus, um, they speak about this sort of behavior and how it's not um, allowed, it's not tolerated. So even the very simple Romans knew that this was wrong, and you don't do it. Even they had that much conscience left within themselves to know that amount of right and wrong. So Paul is not only shocked that this this happened, but he's even more shocked of the church's reaction to it. That the church is willing to tolerate it, and it doesn't seem that they just don't only tolerate it, but that many people within that church are you know, not, wor- not concerned with it at all and are a little puffed up about themselves, are prideful about themselves and of who they are. And I think there's a few different reasons for this. I'm going to propose a few different reasons. Um, the first one we've already mentioned briefly, but the, having the wrong priorities. The people, many, majority of the people in the church at Corinth at this point in time have the wrong priorities. So they're, not, they're concerned about the things that God isn't really concerned about. And they're not concerned about the things that God is very concerned about. They have a complete um, mishandling of what is important and what is not important. I believe the majority in this fellowship, this church, are making their own compromises. And so their own lives are full of unconfessed sin. Not to this grievous a nature... But they've got their own compromises. They've got their own unconfessed sin. And therefore, they're in a spiritual fog themselves. So they're not seeing clearly how hideous this act really is. Because their own hearts are corrupted. I think there's also a little bit of a prideful attitude there about being an accepting community, a non-judging community where anyone can just kind of be as they are and be part of it, and it's not a problem. They've taken openness way too far. And we're going to talk about how that breaks down, because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, because some of you will pendulum swing it too far. So just hold your horses before you make too much um, of it. Just hang tight. We're going to get there. So Paul writes in verse 3, I indeed, he says he's absent in body, but he's present in spirit. He's already judged this as if he was there, the person who's done this deed. And so he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now these are some strong words. You're going to find harder to find stronger words ever written. These are strong words. But the seriousness of the situation demands strong words. It demands this sort of perspective. So for the moment, I want us to skip the issue of judging, because we're going to get to this issue of judging, because we're all sorts of confused about the issue of judging. We're all sorts of confused about that. So we're going to hold off on that for a few minutes. 
few minutes, but I want to talk about the purpose. Like, why does Paul say what he says here? What's his desire? What is the desired outcome? The desired outcome is for the man who has done this wickedness, is for, the, for that guy to no longer be a slave of sin. Because right now this guy is in bondage to sin, and he's blind to the sinfulness of his activities. That his flesh would be conquered and that he would live in the spirit for God's glory and honor. That's what Paul wants for this guy. We see this clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You have to kind of go there to, to um, catch it. A little bit of an over, overreaction from the church that takes place. And Paul coming back and saying, hold on. You still need to love this guy and forgive him. You know, and if he's repentant, you know, bring him back in. Okay, so that's really important in this. So in or, but in order for this to happen, things have gotten so far that Paul instructs the church at Corinth to hand this guy over to Satan. What does that mean? Hand this guy over to Satan. So it means that he's going to be removed from the fellowship. The Apostle Paul has this perspective that this guy who's done this is really a believer, very potentially a believer in Jesus. Okay, So he's going to be removed from the fellowship. He's no longer going to be under the protection of Christ. He's handed over to Satan. So he's no longer under the protection of Christ in terms of his physical life, the things that he experiences on a day-to-day basis. Meaning that he can receive the full punishment for his sin. The the consequences, the natural consequences for what he has done. What's the point of this? The point is that the man would be driven to repentance and restored. At any point, this guy has the opportunity to stop all of this just by confessing his sin from turning from it, from stop, to stop sleeping with his stepmom, and to confess that it was wrong, and to ask for forgiveness. Everything ends, he's right back in the church and in fellowship. He's no longer handed over to Satan, he's back under protection, Okay? But if the man is unrepentant, if he is unwilling to, if he does not confess his sins, the Lord may allow him to be killed, or even the Lord may take him out himself. And that's really, really serious. Whoa, 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 whoa. But if you look later in the book, when you read 1 Corinthians 10 through 14, we're going to get to that section a good bit from now. We've got a ways to go. But you're going to see that some people have been taking the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, in an unworthy manner, not taking it seriously, living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, and said, for this reason, some of you are sick and some sleep, which is a very nice way of saying some of you are dead. That you've been taken out from this world because of how you haven't taken the Lord seriously. That's very serious business. So that could happen. But even in that, it says the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That his spirit would be saved. Whether, you know, the, the Apostle Paul has this view, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming soon, and that's the view that every follower of Jesus should have. That's how we should live life. So when Jesus comes, this man's spirit will be saved, or if this man dies, you know, his spirit is going to be saved. Okay, 
understand that God cares much more about your spirit than he does about your human flesh, your human body. He cares much more about your spirit than your longevity on this earth. He, you know, he cares much more about where you spend eternity and, that you'll, and the, your experience in that than he does about the length of your life here and now. Because life here is short no matter what. Okay, so then we get to verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Savior was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So that, that leaven, leaven and yeast, that's the same, same thing. Okay, you know, we make bread rise when we put, you can put just a little bit of yeast into a bunch of flour and, you know, it makes it rise, right? It just takes a little bit. So a little bit of unconfessed sin in, our, in your life or in my life can mess up your whole life. It doesn't take much because it tends to grow. Unconfessed sin does not stay content staying small. It leads to another, it leads to more, it leads to another, it leads to more, and it grows and it corrupts your whole person. The same thing is true in the church. When sin is not dealt with in the church, when it's allowed just to go on without any sort of confrontation or correction or instruction, then soon the whole body can become corrupted and die. You know, you could put it another way. A few cancer cells can corrupt the whole body, right? If you don't deal with that, those cancer cells while it first starts and when it's small, then the repercussions, even if made well, the repercussions, what you have to go through to get better is significantly more intense, very painful, And if it's not caught soon enough, it results in death. So you can think of it like cancer. You can think of it like cancer cells. So sin is serious. But notice that Paul says, since you truly are unleavened. What he means is, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's a spiritual reality that doesn't change just because your actions don't line up with what Jesus wants, how Jesus wants you to live. Because we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, right? So, if you're, not, if you're truly a believer in Jesus, but in this moment you are not living that, and you have sin in your life and unconfessed sin in your life, God's the one who saves. He saves. He still saved you. You're still saved. But there's that call that your practical life match your spiritual reality. So we don't use that as an excuse. We don't say, Can we, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? But we say there's a high call in Jesus Christ and we want to live up to it. We want to live up to the call of Christ, not you know, as far down as we can just banking on the grace of Christ. 
certainly we can bank on it if, for a true believer. But there's also something there that if somebody has an attitude of, well, I can just sin when I want to, how I want to, and it's not a big deal, does that person really have the reality of Christ in their life? And that's a serious question. And Paul gets at that here shortly. But he gives this call, remember Jesus. Indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He's reminding of that, you know, the Old Testament, the you know, Israelites coming out of Egypt, and they put the, the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorpost. And they were spared, and they were freed from their slavery in Egypt. And so he's saying, here, we have something much better than this because Christ, you know, Christ himself is our Passover. Christ is our Passover lamb. He was the one that was slain for our sins and who took our place and our bath. So keep the feast, and what he's getting at here really is this Lord's Supper, this bread and this cup. Keep the feast not with the old leaven or not with the old ways, your, your malice, your wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you've put off the old person. You've put on the new person. Now live in that. Don't tolerate wickedness in your own life. Don't tolerate wickedness in the church, but live for Jesus. Be sincere in your faith, sincere in truth. I wrote to you in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But to those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So we need to get these, world, these, these instructions right. The world is full of sin. You cannot escape from living in it. You cannot escape the sin that is around us in our world because it's a sinful world and it's everywhere. The idea of going to live in a monastery or to set up a community that would have no interaction with people who you know, weren't followers of Jesus is a completely foreign idea to Jesus and the apostles. They, they know nothing of such a thing. We're to be in the world but not of the world. Because we're to be salt and light. To shine out as light in the darkness, you actually have to be in the darkness. If you're only around light, you're not shining for anything. You're not helping anyone else to see because you're only around light. You have to be, you have to be around some darkness in order to do some good, in order to show people the good news of salvation in Jesus. You know, we don't wait for people to come into our doors in order to share Jesus with them. We are to go out into the world. When darkness comes to the light, well, that's wonderful. We praise God for that, but we don't bank on it. We can't afford to bank on it. There's too many lives at stake. There's too many people who are headed for hell and headed for destruction that need the good news of Jesus that we have to go out. 
We don't just wait for people to come in. The church as a whole has a method of wait for people to come in, and it's not very effective. It's not very effective at all. Notice what he says here. I've written you know, to you not to keep anyone, company with anyone named a brother who is, and then he gives a list of things. So he, there's an understanding that some in the church are truly followers of Jesus and some are just claiming to be. Some are just have the label. But he wants everyone to understand with the label comes expectations. If you're going to take on the name of Christ, then that comes with certain expectations. It also deals with the reality that we can't always know everyone who is a follower of Jesus and everyone who is not a follower of Jesus that is in the church. Sometimes you can be deceived. Sometimes you can think someone is when they're really not. Sometimes people are even self-deceived where they think they are because they've grown up in the church or because they've gone through some religious ceremonies or they've been baptized or they're generally a nice person and they're part of this community that they think, well, I'm right with God then. Well, what are you really banking on? Your experiences, your religious experiences, your, your life? That you're, re, you know, a pretty reasonable, nice person. You're kind of a good guy. Well, you might be a, you know, good guy next to somebody who's committed five murders. But next to the holiness of God, we're all filthy. We're all sinful. We're all rotten, and in desperate need of the blood of Jesus to cover our sins, to pay for our sins. But having the label of follower of Jesus comes with expectations. There's an expectation that you are not going to be sexual, sexually immoral. There's an expectation that you're not going to be greedy. There's an expectation that you're not going to slander people. There's an expectation that you're not going to be a drunkard. And there's an expectation that you're not going to extort people for your own profit or that you'll have other gods. There's an expectation of how you're going to live as a follower of Jesus. And I think that this is one of the biggest mistakes that the church as a whole has made and that we can fall right into it is having no expectations for the followers of Jesus. Which is kind of a anything goes. With the same attitude that's in the church at Corinth that everybody can just live how they want to live. And, you know, and, and in reality, it's so much harder now. It's so much harder now to have a standard. Because, you know, back here at this time at the church in Corinth, when Paul started this church, there was one church in that city. And when a person was put out of fellowship from it, when this guy gets put out of fellowship, he understands the gravity of that. That he doesn't have the fellowship anymore. The repercussions, he's feeling the repercussions of his sin. Well, in our age, you know, anytime somebody, you know, a church tries to do church discipline, the person usually leaves before that process is close to completed. And is already part of another church where they've been welcomed in with open arms and without question. Without question. And so it's really hard in our church culture for any real discipline to take place. And it's at the detriment 
of not just the churches. It is at the detriment of the churches, but it's also at the detriment of the individuals who are living with the name of Christ but are living apart from Christ. It hurts everyone involved. It's not helpful in any way. But we want the easy way out. And most churches are just happy to have another rear end in a seat, especially if that rear end has a check attached to it every month. The church is sold out and has forsaken its responsibility to discipline people. Because a church, especially individual local churches, are afraid of the cost and that their loss will be some other church's financial and numerical gain. And how hideous is that when the name of Jesus is at stake? When the reputation of Christ is at play? That so many churches, the vast majority of churches, will participate in that without a fault, without even asking the question. But that's really just systemic of a bigger question. And it's kind of silly, but most churches actually haven't looked at the Word of God and says, what's a church supposed to be? Haven't bothered to look and see what God says about it. But it's like the people in the book of Judges, you know, the Israelites in the book of Judges, where it says, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the state of the modern church. And everybody did what was right in his own eyes. I hope the generations to come, some of which are in this room, do better than that. But there is a standard, and we have to put away that sinfulness. We have to put it away. We can look at things in our culture here recently. You know, we, you know I'm going to use the NFL because it's so huge. It's so stinking massive. It dictates so many people's lives. And, you know, and it's really silly. Because I'm just, I mean, I, and I, I like football. Don't get me wrong. I'm a football fan, even though lately I've had, I, I, I question my like of it, okay, for several reasons. But a football game, if you take from when the ball is hiked to when the whistle blows into the play, and you put all of those together, you've got about 17 minutes. You've got about 17 minutes of action per game. And you've got three or four hours devoted to those 17 minutes. But not just that. You've got to read all the blogs. You've got to read all the, you know, watch the sports center with this and that and the other thing. And those 17 minutes can take about 20 hours. And it's the most popular sport in our country, and it's not close. It's not close. It may change. It may be at its top. It may be at its peak. I don't know. But it's not close. It dominates. And it's a reflection of what our culture likes. It can't be popular without the broader culture making it popular. Do you understand that? I mean, it works both ways on it. You know, it influences the culture, but the culture also influences it. In some ways, it's a microcosm and it's a reflection of our larger culture. So suddenly when this video came out with 
you know, a football player knocking out his fiance, which happened on February 15th, but it wasn't until a few weeks ago when there was an actual video where you could see what happened that people actually got upset about it. And it wasn't like it was the first time, because there have been dozens and dozens of other situations. But this video brings things out. But understand something. Since February 15th, over 600 women in our country have died because of domestic violence. 600. Over 600. What does that relate to this? It relates that nothing like that should be named among followers of Christ. You identify the evil in your culture. And you say, as followers of Jesus... We are a contrast society, and we have nothing to do with that. Domestic violence has no place in the life of any follower of Jesus, male or female. It just doesn't. There's no room for it. No room can be allowed for it. It can't be tolerated. But you also have to understand this. That those murders or the extreme acts of violence, that's the, that's the extreme end of the spectrum. But what feeds that? Well, it has its roots in a misogynistic culture that objectifies women. And certain physical features of women. And it's that culture that feeds many of our problems. It's that culture that feeds the date date rape culture that's prevalent at the University of Georgia. That same culture that that allows that domestic to be an incubator for that domestic violence that you see in the NFL is the same culture that incubates a culture where it's okay to rape a girl on a date at the University of Georgia. It's, a, it's the same culture that incubates both of those, just played out in different ways. But notice what, what it says here. That this stuff shouldn't be named among us, the sexual immorality. Because we, can, we have to back even that way up and go, where does that start with? And that starts with temptations to lust, and it starts with pornography. Well, is pornography accepted in the church? It most certainly is. You see what I'm getting at? You're talking about different ends. Of the, you're talking about ends of a spectrum, from you know less violent to more violent. But what I'm saying is where it starts, and then where it leads. And just because in your personal life, pornography might not lead to to rape or to beating someone or to murder doesn't make it any less sinful. Doesn't make those acts any less sinful than the acts that lead to the worst things for that other guy. But do you tolerate it in your own life? Do we tolerate it in our own lives and in our church? The answer is yes, we do when we shouldn't, and we can't afford to. There's too much at stake. And if we're going to really make a difference in our world, as, in our culture, as a contrast society, we actually have to be a contrast. 
We can't be the same as. We actually have to be a contrast. We have to be different. And we have to raise the bar. So whoever you are, I mean, it just starts with your eyes. It starts with your eyes and your heart. That's where it starts for us. You know, I'm going to speak to everyone on that because we make the mistake of saying, well, sometimes, you know, well, guys are the only ones who start struggle with these things. Well, that's not true. Maybe more, maybe more guys struggle more intensely. Okay, I'm willing to say that, but that's as far as I'm willing to say with it. But it's those compromises, just like the church in Corinth was, was making. If it was today, that church at Corinth, what would you see on their Facebook? What would they be liking? What would they be posting on their wall? And that would tell you the story. And that would tell you the story. Let me check my Facebook. Just got 30 unfriends, maybe. I don't know. Possibly. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not looking at, and, and I want to understand this because now we're going to talk about that. We're going to finish with this. This idea of judgment, and then how do, what do we do with all this? Because, you know, I know some of you are thinking the verse that Jesus says, you know, judge not, lest you be judged. There's context for everything, people. There's context for everything. And if you miss the context, you usually miss the point. I believe what Jesus is talking about there is this content, condemning, I'm better than you are, judgmentalism. But let's not also forget what Jesus said. He said, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see what? Clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He doesn't say, just let your brother have a speck in his eye and continue to walk around with it. No, he says, take the log, the plank, the two by four, whatever you want to call it, out of your own eye. Get it out of there. And then you'll see clearly. And then you can, you can actually help your brother. Because I've had a speck in eye. I had, once I had a piece of insulation in my eye. Oh, wow. Okay, I woke up. I mean, it happened when I, and I went, managed to go to sleep. I went to sleep. I woke up. We had like an early morning prayer meeting. <laughs> prayer meeting, prayer meeting. I'm just like, it's so much pain after the day. I can't take this anymore. My eyes swollen up. I can hardly see. You know, and I, you know, with our medicine, like, had to go to the regular doctor before I could go to the eye doctor. I had to get the referral. You know, so it's just extra hours of pain is all that is. By the time I get to the eye doctor, I'm like, dude, you can have, like, you want to take my credit card? You can take anything that's on there, even if I can't pay it back. Like, it does not matter. Like, you can take the house. You can take the cars. You can take, we didn't have kids then, but, you know, they might have been on the table, too, if we had had them. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, anything, make this stop. And then, you know, he, you know, uses little tool thing. Boom. Instant relief. Instant relief. And I was just like, Man, bless you. Like, give a dude a hug. You know, holding on to his feet. <laughs> Thank you. All right? A speck is a serious thing. Jesus isn't diminishing the problem of, a, of having a speck in your eye or in your brother's eye. But you've got to get rid of these big things before you can deal with those. And what does Jesus also say? Because he gives us a way that we're supposed to handle these things in Matthew 18. Notes, notes, notes. 
18.15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear that, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So this is the order of things. Brother sins against you, and I think, as we see in this church of Corinth, this guy is sinning basically against the church and the reputation of the church and the reputation of Christ. And it's right that someone goes and confronts this guy. What you're doing is wrong. So it's a one-on-one conversation. The person doesn't listen, you take two or three so that there's witnesses to the conversation. The person doesn't listen, you take them to the whole church. And still there. And if they won't listen, that person won't listen to the whole church. He says, let them be to you as a tax collector and heathen. What's, again, you have to understand at this time, tax collectors are traitors to the Israelites working for the Roman government. They're viewed as traitors, so Jesus uses that term. You know, and as those who have no regard for God. Why do you treat them that way? Now, how did Jesus treat those people? He shared the good news with them that they were in their sins and that they needed him. Okay? Like that's, you know, Jesus didn't want to just, you know, throw those people away. He wanted to treat them in such a way that they need to understand we're treating you as though you don't know God, which means you need to know God. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news of Jesus. That's how the church is to respond in these situations. But it certainly isn't easy. And honestly, like I said before, it hardly ever gets there. Because people in their stubborn people that are stubborn and have options usually take them. And right now there's lots of options. No one in our culture has to deal with any sort of church discipline if they do not want to. But usually people who want to are willing to humble themselves and to admit that they were wrong. And things don't get that far in the first place. See, you see the conundrum. You see the problem. So, so I hope that that is, that is clear. Here the Apostle Paul is saying, we don't judge those who are outside. Notice there's nothing said, Paul says absolutely nothing, about the stepmom. She says nothing about that woman. Why? She's not claim, it doesn't appear that she's claiming to be a, a believer, nor is she part of the church in Corinth. That's somebody else's, you know, Paul's perspective. That, that's for God to judge with her, for God to deal with with her. But this guy who says he's a brother, now we've got to deal with this. This guy's still participating in the local church. We've got to deal with this. You understand the difference? So when you have, you know, the preachers at Tate who are, you know, just any person who walks by and yelling at them that they're this and that and the other thing, what would Paul say? What do you have to do with judging those who are outside? When you're going to make it real personal. I'm not talking about saying you in general terms like you've got this sinful culture. I'm talking about when he's saying you specifically are X, Y, Z and just calling people out in front of everyone on tape, whether it's true or not, whether they know it for real or not, have any evidence or not. Those things, I mean, Paul look at that and go, what is that? That has nothing to do with 
his agenda. But this dude in the church is where this needs to be preached. That message isn't for the streets. It's for in the church. What do we do? Got three things for us this morning. First is to repent. This is for followers of Jesus. If you claim the name of Christ, if you say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you, that you died on the cross for my sins, you rose from the dead, I trust in you alone for my salvation, it's all on you. If that's your position, and you've got unrepentant sin in your life, what do you do? First thing, repent. 1 John 1, 9, written to followers of Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should do that every time before we take the bread and the cup. We should really do it every day. But certainly we have this every week so that every week you have an opportunity before you take that bread, before you take that cup, to remember Jesus. You have that opportunity to confess your sins and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm going to turn from those things so that I can honor your name. That's number one, repent. Number two is to raise the bar. Collectively, we have to raise the bar. Men, I'm going to say specifically in the areas that we've talked about today when it comes to sexual immorality and pornography and these sort of things, we've got to raise the bar with one another and have real accountability. Because we can't tolerate these things because they're too destructive. They're too destructive for our sisters in Christ. I want my daughter to grow up without every even Christian guy that she's around looking at her in a sexual way. I want my little boy to grow up to be a man who respects women and knows how to treat one. But we need all of us to be serious about that if that's the type of young women and the type of young men that we're going to raise up and grow in the church. It means we have to have some serious conversations. We have to have some serious conversations with our own hearts, with the Lord. But it also means we have to have serious conversations with one another and we have to raise that bar. And so, guys, especially, I'm not talking about your friends who aren't unbelievers, even though you can say, no, that's not funny. No, that's actually kind of disgusting. Yeah, you can do that. And there are times and places you should do that. But particularly around your brothers and sisters of Christ, young men, or you know, when some guy makes a sexual joke or puts something sexual on his Facebook, if, he's a, if he claims the name of Christ, are you going to call it out or are you going to like it? Are you going to call it out and say, brother, that's wrong? Or are you going to go, click? I like you. One is right, the other is disgusting. We've got to raise the bar. Colossians 3 tells us you know, to seek those things which are above, not the things on the earth. We're being, again, we come back to that problem, but we're being satisfied with too little. And I don't mean materially, I mean, you know, we're, we're being satisfied with too little on the spiritual expanse that Christ has to offer us in this life, and we're willing to trade it for crap. And we've got to stop doing that. Paul would call it dung, if you read it in the Bible. 
Please don't be too upset. All right. Repent, raise the bar, run to Jesus. This is the last thing. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Run to Jesus, keep your eyes on him. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Hey, you think you're hard to get? You think you're hard to trap? Please. Please. We're called sheep for a reason. Not too hard to trap, not too hard to kill. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy who was set before him endured endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It goes on to say, and you have not yet resisted against sin to bloodshed. You haven't gone as far as Christ has gone because Christ went to the cross. And he died for sin. He paid for sin there. Your struggle against it in your own life and in your own culture, it hasn't gone that far. Don't act like Jesus is asking too much. Because he went all the way to the cross. So what do we do with it? We have to look to Jesus. We have to keep our eyes on him because my eyes are on me or anything else. I can't. I'm weak. I fail. On my own, it, it's not pretty. It's just not pretty. In my own human flesh, it's just not. Got to look to Jesus. Got to keep eyes on Jesus. Repent, raise the bar, run to Jesus. Grab hold of him, look in his eyes, don't let go. Like, keep focused on Jesus. That's what this comes down to. This is the reality that we have to strive for because our reality in Christ is that God looks at us as justified. In the legal sense, because Jesus paid for our sins, we are justified before God. But in our practical daily lives, that call to what is, the Bible refers to as sanctification, living in the right way before God, we are called to that. And we need to strive for that. And we can't take compromises. Even the little things, a little yeast leavens the whole lump. A little cancer kills all of you. Eventually. Like, don't let it happen. And this is really ultimately what it comes down to. It comes down to willfully being accountable with God and with other people. Willfully being accountable. You need people in your life who love you enough to tell you when you're wrong. You need people in your life who love you enough to say, that's not good enough. Jesus expects more of us. A lot of times, that's, I mean, what does Proverbs say? The wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. That you love enough to cause a sting in a brother or sister for their good. That you re- you're willing to love Christ enough, you're willing to receive that sting 
that sting of that's not acceptable or that doesn't meet the standard to have that sting in your own heart and life. It's something that you have to volunteer for and you have to ask for and give other people in your life the freedom to do. Who in your life have you given permission? You can correct me when you see I'm wrong. I expect that you will keep me accountable when you see that I'm wrong. When I'm not living for Jesus like I should, I expect that you will say something to me. Who have you said that to in your life? Do you want real accountability? Or do you want the pat on the back that everything's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, meanwhile, everything just crumbles? An illusion of spiritual health. An illusion of having a good church. Our church that honors God. We can't have it. We don't need it. Jesus is worthy of all of us, of our whole lives. He is worthy that we live for him. As we take this bread and we take this cup this morning, let's say that he's worthy and acknowledge it. Before we do that, I'm sure most all of us have sins that we need to repent of and to say that we're sorry for. And things that you can do so privately, do so privately. But, you know, Scripture also says confess your sins one to another. And some things aren't appropriate for the whole group, especially in detail. You don't need to go to some places. But if you've got a sin that the Lord lays on your heart resonates with more people than just you, you can confess it. You can confess it in front of the whole. You got greed, you can confess it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. You're worthy of our whole lives. Lord, this is a heavy passage, and it's a heavy message. But Jesus, you know how much we need it. Every last one of us, we need it, Lord. We need to be reminded that you're worthy and that we cannot afford to compromise and to live like the sinful culture around us. Lord, help us to be that contrast society. Help us to be different personally and collectively. Lord, we want to raise our kids where they value themselves and value as others as human beings made in your image whom Jesus died for. And that they're not just pieces of meat to use and be used. That you have made them and made each one of us for more than that. Far more than that. Lord, we know that the enemy can only pervert. And that his only creativity is in the the ways that he can pervert but only you can make the things that are good and right and true. So, Lord, I pray that we would hold on to beauty. I pray that we would hold on to the good, and in our fight against evil, we would not throw out the good, Lord. But we would hold on and elevate the things that you have made as right and true, and that even if they're things that the enemy has perverted and degraded. So please, 
Help us to have right minds and right hearts to see as you see and to live as you live, as you desire us to live. Dear Jesus, we need you for this. We ask you in your precious name. Amen.